It's the first Monday of the month. That means it's time for Midnight Theology, a podcast where we talk all things Christianity, leadership, culture, and whatever else we want to talk about. I'm your host, Larry Frank, and as always, I'm joined by Gabe Wank. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, and maybe it's good night. Depending on when you see them. Uh, Dr. Sarah Wank. Uh, hey, y'all. <laughs> and Adam Penn. Howdy. You didn't say doctor. I'm hey, Dr. Larry Frank. I've got the microphone right now. <laughs> well, congratulations, hey, so, doctor. Thank you. Thank you. After you, doctor, Dr. Frank. Doctor. After you, Dr. Frank. Hey, thanks for joining us again. We appreciate you listening and being with us so faithfully as this group grows regularly. Night Owls Unite. Midnight Theology is a go. So this is part two of our conversation on what in the world is happening in the United Methodist Church. Uh, and I don't know that any of us could have predicted the response we would have gotten from part one. I think it's the most engagement we've had around a podcast uh, episode and uh, been shared widely. And we've gotten lots of people reaching out to us. So keep doing that. If that uh, show was helpful to you, if this one's helpful, give us a like and a share uh, and a review and uh, help us to continue to grow and share these uh, conversations. Uh, So last time, guys, we gave a brief history of the United Methodist Church as a denomination, uh, and then we uh, went into the ongoing debate regarding the extent of inclusion for LGBTQ persons um, and kind of the the theological uh, drift. I don't even know if I want to say drift, but just kind of... uh, uh, differences that have emerged in uh, within the big tent of United Methodism that we've tried to p- pitch. Um, and we ended uh, with the cancellation of the 2020 General Conference uh, due to COVID. It was postponed a couple of times uh, and then uh, uh, finally canceled completely and won't be held until March of 2024. Um, if you didn't catch all of that uh, that episode, I encourage you to go back and listen to that. Um, but let's let's walk through a little bit of a quick recap of uh, of what we talked about in that one. Uh, starting with in 1972, uh, a line was added to the United Methodist Book of Discipline. At that point, a very young denomination, because we only became a denomination in what year? 1968. All right, very good. 1968, we become a denomination. In 1972, a line is added to the discipline that says, while all people are of sacred worth and in need of the ministry of the church, we consider the practice of homosexuality to be incompatible with Christian teaching. Uh, and that, that's been nuanced and rephrased and uh, redefined in, in other places in the discipline to have the effect that um, our pastors are not able to preside at, nor are our church, church facilities available for same-sex weddings, and self-avowed practicing homosexuals are not to be ordained, uh, commissioned, or licensed as clergy uh, in the United Methodist Church. General Conference meets every four years, and every four years, um, this has come up for debate. All of us, our entire life in the United Methodist Church, uh, as pastors and as lay people, uh, this has been the topic of conversation, right? Um, and in 2016, it was really coming to a head. Uh, the vote every four years, four years continued uh, to reaffirm that traditional uh, Orthodox uh approach and statement. Uh, and it was clear that it was going to be, uh, upheld again. So the bishops called a timeout, um, and formed what was called the commission on a way forward. And the f- effect of the commission on a way forward, 
uh, was to say, we're, we're going to take a time out, take a deep breath. We're going to have this commission that studies this issue to bring a plan to a specially called general conference that can help us find our way out of this, this gridlock. Uh, so they asked at that time that those who uh, were on the progressive side um, would, uh, would stop violating the discipline. Uh, and they were they were asking those on the conservative side to kind of take a time out on uh, on uh, filing charges and complaints. And let's just be. Um, so that was 2016. Um, and immediately after the close of the uh, general conference, uh, we found out that there was not going to be any pause. Right. Uh, so that's May of 2016. In August of of 2016, the uh, general conferences meet um, to elect new bishops, and the gen- no the jurisdictional the ju- yes, you mean jurisdiction- yes, the jurisdictional yeah. conferences meet to elect new bishops. I was in Peoria uh, for our jurisdictional conference where our bishop Frank Beard was elected um, uh, early in that process, and we kept getting word that the Western jurisdiction was gridlocked. Um, and there no no candidate was coming forward, uh, and then eventually we received word that Doctor Reverend Doctor Karen Olivedo had been elected as the bishop in the United Methodist Church. Uh, she had been the pastor of Glide Memorial United Methodist Church in San Francisco. I think that's where Glide is. Uh, and what uh, made news about that is Doctor Olivedo is a self-avowed practicing homosexual but to use that that very narrow definition she is a member of the gay community um and was elected as uh as a bishop uh and why don't you guys just kind of share what your um what you remember happening around around that time because it seemed like everyone's heads were on fire on, <laughs> on 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 both sides so just to make sure she's you say practicing does that mean she's mm-hmm. married she yep. l- legally, married legally married in 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 the U- yeah and and that 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 event just again history is important and and timelines are important when did it become legal for that to happen in in the US uh, 2012 i know it was state to state to a degree and then there was a federal just i mean it it, it happened within within the last previous 5 years is that correct Give or take. I, I don't recall. I, I mean, I mean, without without googling it, but I, I think what you're trying to say, right, is that that the legalization of gay marriage had not been in existence for a long time uh, prior to her election, and um, and so it's kind of a new, it was kind of a new issue for the church to navigate, right? What what does it mean for somebody to be uh, under yeah. that kind of um, uh, legal place of marriage? Uh, while right. the discipline, um, you know, continued to um, not support right the covenant of marriage, and yeah, it right. yeah, there's there's a, there's a tension there for sure. Yeah, it was the the national legislation was passed in 2015, so mm-hmm. just a a year before. Yeah, I'm sure California was out ahead of before that. Though, that I, I yeah. remember right when right. I was an undergrad, Proposition Eight would have banned same sex weddings in California, and there was a big thing around that. So I'm sure in California it was um, much, yeah much sooner, but. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You know, as as far as people's feelings, I I I feel like um, it was both this out of body surreal. Uh, you know, is this happening? Um, because it was, it it was an open act of defiance against the discipline. 
uh, you know, that there's a group of people going, is this really happening? <laughs> and and what does this mean? And and will it be upheld um, by our judicial council? And 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 there certainly were a group of people that saw it as a step forward in progress to, uh, you know, moving the church towards a place of inclusion and uh, and and the tension of that we've just continued to live in, right? Um, that it is both this um, out of body how how are we in covenant together, uh, and we're acting on that covenant differently and at different times and different places and and um. And yet, for some, you know, celebration that that progress was being made on something that they had seen as an act of uh, an issue of justice since 1972, right? So, um, it it just is surreal, maybe is the word that I they have for it at the time. There was a lot of emotion around it. We didn't necessarily, uh, people didn't necessarily um, behave well and respond well um, as emotions came forward. I think with that. Um, yeah, it was a it was a different time. Something that we've been talking about as issue every four years, every annual conference for as long as we all can remember. And then in 2016, it became this practical, you know, issue before us. And 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 right after um, her election, or shortly after, I'm sorry, I don't have the timeline in front of me. Uh, the Western jurisdiction. Uh, that had been more progressive on on these issues um, broke away essentially and said that they would be operating under their own authority and their own leadership, and that just added to this like, oh, <laughs> uh, like what's ha- what in the world is happening? You know, we're we're under the same discipline and the same covenant, but it's now starting to be um, acted on and played out um, in in different ways across our country, at least. And and that, if you're a lifelong United Methodist, that's just bizarre. It's, it's like, is this really happening, right? Um, yeah. So just to back up for a second, uh, to explain a little bit of Methodist polity here and, and how this works, uh, our denomination is structured similarly to the uh, American government. I Did we discuss this last podcast episode, guys? We, we have three branches Right. We did, but please revisit it. Yeah, like yeah. So we've recap. got, yeah, we've got the legislative branch, which is essentially general conference. Uh, your executive branch, which is the council of bishops, and then your judicial branch, which is the judi- judicial council. So when Bishop Olavito was elected, the judicial council was asked to make a ruling on the constitutionality of her election and whether or not it was valid uh, in in light of what our Book of Discipline says. And they ruled that it was not in keeping with our Book of Discipline. And so when Sarah's referring to the Western jurisdiction breaking away, the college bishops in the Western jurisdiction essentially said, no, we're not going to abide by that ruling. We're going to continue to operate as we have been. So they didn't break away from the United Methodist Church. They just chose not to enact those checks and balances. So so it was a failure of what is supposed to be checks and balances built into our polity. Yes. Yeah. And that that was really that was a watershed moment in the life of our denomination where our the the validity of our covenant as a whole came into question. Yeah, yeah, the breaking away in the sense of um, the application of the discipline, uh, right. and then an act of, um, you know, open defiance uh, by the jurisdiction. 
you know, there may have been prior to that cases of uh, individual cases, right, of people being ordained or serving as clergy in, in open practicing relationships. But this was like the whole the whole body of the jurisdiction going, um, we're going to go another direction with this. And again, just sort of this um, surreal out-of-body watershed sort of moment that we began behaving differently than we had ever behaved before. Right, because mm-hmm. in, in the spirit of those checks and balances, the judicial council had no authority to undo her election and yeah. her consecration and appointment uh, to the Mountain Sky area in the Western jurisdiction. They, just like you would hear the Supreme Court do, they remanded, they, they gave their decision and they put it in the hands of the Western Jurisdiction College of Bishops. Uh, their, their ruling said, <clears throat> um, to briefly paraphrase it, that her election was invalid, her consecration was invalid, and her appointment was invalid. So there were three pieces to that ruling and that all three needed to be undone by the College of Bishops. Uh, and they, they refused <clears throat> to act on that. So, I mean, those that ruling is still out there, um, but there's been no no action on that. So, that, so in, in the wake of that, um, the Wesleyan Covenant Association launches uh, in, in all around that that same that same time, and the WCA uh, started as a uh, a conservative uh, renewal movement within the United Methodist Church, um, and uh, it, it was right around that same time as 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 her election. And I remember that's that's when. You, you felt like the divide that we had been talking about coming that we always thought was going to happen. This is, this is when it happened. Um, mm-hmm. and, and there was no going back. Um, so on the progressive side, you have this act of disobedience in, uh, in the election of Bishop Olivedo. Uh, and on the conservative side, you have this group that says that they're, that they're existing for the renewal and reform of the denomination, but everybody kind of knew that it was going to end up <laughs> as its own denomination. Right. Like, I mean, so it was that, that moment of something is coming and the wheels are in motion and there, there's no pumping the brakes anymore. Yeah. Um, so, well, they said of themselves, I think they said of themselves that that WCA is just a bridge to the next, to the next thing, to the next expression of Methodism in a conservative vein. Yeah. They didn't take Uh, much to read between the the lines. Uh, yeah, of what was yeah, coming. No, I, I don't think it was at first, but down the road that they would midwife, right, a new, a new way yeah. forward, and 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 we can't go back in time. There are so many things we can't, you know, undo. But uh, I think both of these things allowed people to dream about a new sort of Methodism. And sure, when prior to that, it, there's no dreaming about a, a new form of Methodism. You're, you're you stay at the table together, and. Um, and when you begin to sort of think of other options, whether that is open defiance against the discipline to change it, or it is uh, we may have to find our way out of Methodism, I think people begin acting differently and making different choices because uh, because there's potentially a way forward. Yeah, I, I think what I want to nu- what I want to nuance in what you said though is it's not a way out of Methodism; it's a way no, out no, of United no. Methodism. Yes, uh, that, thank that, you, thank uh, you. The, the and and that's the piece that's the the horn that I keep blasting uh, in this whole thing is that the Methodist Wesleyan movement is bigger than the United Methodist Church. We're we're, we're currently it, the largest expression of that. 
Um, right. But right. W- what, there's what eight, eight ten, ten to twelve million United Methodists, but there's what sixty to eighty million Methodists I mean, of sort, Pan Wesleyans. Yeah, and I think all of our exposure through World Methodist Evangelism, I mean that that opened all of our eyes to oh, we're not it. Uh, yeah. You know it, whether it's. Uh, the the AME AME Zion Christian Methodist Episcopal Salvation Army is 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 Wesleyan Nazarene Wesleyan Church of God right you know and I think that as a died in the wool United Methodist this is the only tribe I've ever known that's some a a reckoning I've had to make with myself free Methodist that that the Wesleyan movement is so much bigger than our little corner of it Um, even though everything that's happening is painful. Um, yeah, it, we entered into this incredible season of grief start, starting in 2016 because you could sort of feel the wheels coming off a bit with these, uh, you know, uh, different avenues, you know, unfolding. And um, it, it's worth noting that just a lot of people deeply grieved in that season, um, 2016 with um, the bishop's election, uh, 2019 with the special called conference that was... Uh, that was deeply sad and painful for so many as it just became clearer and clearer um, that that we were not um, that we may not find our way forward together well both sides mm-hmm. I mean you're saying yeah you, you, and what you're saying is not wrong there is sadness but there's also joy and there's also relief and there's also dancing for those on the other side of the issue uh, you know, and as we try to frame the issue, there's the wh- who we have always been, and then this new expression of United Methodism that is emerging within the life of the United Methodist Church, not global, but more s- regionalized into the Americas primarily. Uh, and there's there's something to be said that there is a an, an expression of joy happening uh, because of uh, Karen's uh, election to bishop. Uh, and the other steps taken and continuing to be taken uh, into what the new United Methodist Church looks like, even as you know our heads have been spinning since 2016 as we see all of this, uh, I don't know, is it wrong to say vitriol between uh, the camps? Uh, there's been a measure of a war, uh, kind of like what we saw in the U.S. with North and South going to town with, uh, you know, the... Um, differences that we've had of how we exist together uh, as a union as a as a united states uh, I think there's some of that I but for the so probably both and I guess uh, I don't know everybody's surprised surprise, to hear me surprise. say that I, yeah I think there's there there's 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 a measure of celebration on on both sides uh, I think progressive folks feel like they're about to get a lot of what they'd hoped for and I think um conservative folks who are joining the GMC or are heading towards uh, independence uh, feel like they're going to be free of some of the drama. Um, but I don't know anybody who's not grieved yeah, by, I- by, by what's happening. I mean, I, so as so I was, I was a marshal at the special called session. I'm standing uh, at the, the barrier to where the delegates are voting to make sure that only voting delegates are on the floor when the traditional plan passed. And, and I say that as somebody who, who supports, um, the current language in our book of discipline. Uh, I, I appreciate the very nuanced stance that it has. Um, and even I was sad when the traditional plan passed because I knew there was, there was probably no coming back 
from that moment that that was that was probably um you know further the wheels falling off of the the wagon of the of the the big uh the big tent uh everyone uh at the table um and i i stood i stood there in the moments after the vote um the first person i spoke to was our bishop he was coming down off of the stage to go check in with our our delegates um and uh, we hugged each other uh, and then the next moments were spent with uh, a dear friend of mine uh, who's no longer United Methodist um, after that, uh, but was uh, a Methodist elder uh, with me and uh, on the other side of the issue, uh, very progressive um, in their stance. And we stood and cried together and hugged one another because we knew. Um, so that the, the 2019 General Conference, there was no coming back. Um, well, and I and I think what it taught us is that a vote is not going to settle this. Mm-mm. Yeah, right. You know, le- legislation or votes are not going to settle this. What what we have currently, uh, from a practical standpoint, is two disparate groups of people with two disparate beliefs uh, about human sexuality who will continue to act out of those beliefs, no matter what legislation is passed or what votes are taken. Yeah. And that's just the current reality. Yeah, and, and it's not—it's not just different differing thoughts around sexuality. Uh, we went there a little bit in the last episode, right, right. right? You know, theological drift. So it's it's this loss of a shared language. Yes, uh, thank like, you. Like we're we're using the same words mm-hmm. um, when talking. We use the same words about renewal and revivals. Everyone's favorite word uh, right mm-hmm. now in the wake of the Asbury revival. Um, renewal and revival and reaching people for Jesus, but we don't mean the same things anymore Mm -hmm. uh, in that. So we've got that loss of shared language. So that's one of the issues playing itself out in our theology. Um, And then there's this overwhelming lack of trust. I, we, we, Mm -hmm. we are suspicious of one another uh, in the midst of this. I knew that was going to come. So I was listening to another (laughs) podcast, um, uh, recently and they were talking about uh, how the, this this watershed moment happened in the United States where we stopped trusting one another and sociologists are tying it back to uh, airport airport security checkpoints like mm-hmm. prior to the early 70s you could just walk up to the gate buy your ticket get on your plane your family could go with you uh, all the way to the gate um, you know and then there have been some hijackings and some security gets put in nothing like what we've had since 9/11. But now there's a measure of security checkpoints, and the person standing next to you in line is suddenly suspicious to you. Mm. And so mm-hmm. we, we, we've lost our shared language, but we're also looking at one another going, I don't know if I can trust this person. Mm. And that's played out amongst clergy and our covenant with one another. That's played out between local churches, and it's played out within local churches. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's that's kind of the place we're, we're in. So in the wake of the special session, uh, everybody knew that that wasn't going to wasn't going to work. A vote wasn't going to solve anything. We we proved that. We're prepared for another general conference to come in 2020. Um, the Feinberg Protocol that we talked about in the last episode is negotiated um, b- between centrists and progressive and conservative leaders, and everyone kind of feels comfortable with it. Like this is a plan to amicably separate the United Methodist Church, that the WCA would be able to launch into their own denomination, uh, officially recognized by the UMC and blessed on their way, uh, even sent with some money, 
to do that. Um, there would be the post-separation United Methodist Church, where everyone expected language around sexuality to change, uh, but that the two, two sides would kind of bless one another on the way. Then COVID happened. Um, and dun, dun, dun. yeah, and like with everything with COVID, uh, the protocol died, uh, it, the support for it waned. Um, so in, in the absence of general conferences voice in the absence of, um, the protocol being a viable, uh, thing, uh, we've just been a mess since, since 2020 and you know longer than that, but there've been continued acts of, of disobedience, um, just in this last round of jurisdictional conferences for the election of new bishops, uh, Cedric Bridgeforth uh, was elected in the Western jurisdiction. Uh, again, that's where Bishop Alavedo's at. Uh, he is also a married gay man. Um, so a, a further act of, of disobedience, and there are charges flying around uh, about that, about his election and consecration and assignment. Um, and I think our bishop said, has said several times since um, the 2019 special session that nothing changed, but everything shifted. Mm. And, and we've seen this major shift with um, what, what seemed to be a, mi- a minority of progressive voices. Um, they're getting stronger uh, mm. and, 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 and have been, have been woken up to this is the reality we're in and we have to fight for our, our, our church. Um, so we've had that. And, and, uh, and with the protocol off the table, um, the protocol provided potentially, if people discerned it and 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 listened, you know, for what their future was going to look like, it provided a way out of the tension. Right. And I and I think with that off the table, it felt people felt backed into a corner, right? So that then there is no plan for a way out if you are uncomfortable with what what is happening within the UMC. So then, so then people start. I feel like they start reacting, uh, acting uh, maybe emotionally, acting towards their convictions, and fighting for uh, their version of the United Methodist Church. And so it, it right. raised the temperature, uh, you know, significantly uh, when that comes off the table, and um, and we started to see maybe some more acts of open defiance. Well, and we also saw the launch of the Global Methodist Church. Yes, right. Yeah, yeah. you know, so that was that was the other side of the response was, yeah. uh, twenty twenty general conference continued to be postponed, and so last year in May, the Global Methodist Church officially launched without any protocol being passed or or any clear exit path other than the paragraph that was passed the twenty nineteen special session, and so now whatever churches have been able to find their way out of the United Methodist Church under those terms uh, have done so, uh, but it's kind of created this trickle um, out of the United Methodist Mm -hmm. Church, and as more traditionalist voices leave the table, uh, obviously there there are less traditionalists left, and so the progressive voices have grown stronger in the United Methodist Church. Um, So that's also something else we've seen as well. and it's kind of uh, put churches in a tough position uh, because we have the provisions that were passed by the 2019 special session expiring at the end of this year um, that allow churches to disaffiliate uh, under more favorable terms than what our standard process in the Book of Discipline outlines. 
Um, they expire at the end of this year, but we don't have general conference until next year. So it remains to be seen as to whether provisions will be passed at next year's general conference. Um, Again, pointing to the distrust that, mm-hmm. that, we, that we have for one another. Um, I think another thing to note with what you just said, Adam, is the, is, uh, the election of delegates to general and jurisdictional conference was very different in the aftermath of the special session of, yeah. of general conference. I, our annual conference was a microcosm of that. I think we had a pretty diverse delegation, uh, especially amongst clergy. Uh, I, I think our lay delegation was more conservative um, heading into 2019, but the clergy was a good mix. Uh, when we voted for delegates for the 2020 general conference, uh, it was a clean sweep of uh of for for progressives and 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 centrists anybody who uh was even suspected of holding an orthodox position uh and affirming the language of the discipline did not have a chance of being elected um and and i'm not saying that there hasn't been strategy around the election of delegates before there always there has always been strategy but it it like went up a notch into um i think that's when we started to see really organized uh, you know, efforts for people to sort of, uh, for lack of better phrase, get their way uh, with not just the election of delegates, but all sorts of things. There became this sort of um, political organized movement, right, on um, on not just two sides, all sorts of sides uh, to try to fight mm-hmm. for what, what you think you're saving, right? Um, and it, again, all of that just sort of kept adding fuel to the fire. Like since right. 16, every... Every little, you know, uh, general conference postponement, the election of a new bishop, um, continued, uh, you know, election of um, openly gay pastors, uh, even things from the conservative side. They are not innocent in this conversation, withholding apportionments, you know, um, acting in defiance in their own way. And every little bit just sort of kept pouring gasoline on a fire. And um, we found ourselves in hotter and hotter water uh sort of gradually, <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, the temperature in 2019 was different than the temperature in 2016 and people trying to sort of uh, hang on to see what happens and everybody having to start to ask, uh, how how long can I stay in, in this hot water, right? Uh, how hot does it have to get before um, our church or me as a pastor have to make a decision about whether we can stay here or not? So, um, for for four or five years, there was just a continued intensity around, um, you know, acts of disobedience, um, you know, the way forward with the GMC um, and um, delegate elections and, and, and uh, that just uh, when I think when the local church um, people in the local church may be a little surprised, like, what's the big deal? What's changed so dramatically since we last talked about this in 2015 or 2016? For some folks, 2019. And I would I would just say a lot, a lot has changed uh, since congregations last had conversation about it. And I, I think we've painted that picture well, but it is, we are not in the same water that we were in uh, in 2016. And there's a lot of churches, local churches, it all comes down to the local church. Um, 
the bigger ones seem to have their finger on the pulse of the denomination. They know what's going on. They know who uh, you know their representatives are. They know who their bishops are, and jurisdictional uh, delegates, uh, general conference delegates. But sometimes, uh, you know, and even smaller local churches can be engaged and know those sorts of things. But uh, I've found that there's a lot of churches, their pastors, the churches, they are just so focused on the main things and the main things in their local area, the people within their community, uh, serving their community, being the hands and feet of Jesus and so many things. They haven't been made aware. They haven't made themselves aware of what's happening. They don't know. And then they're just picking up on it in the last couple of years. I mean, this has been an ongoing thing for 50 years, but they're just picking up on these winds of strife, and they're like, what is going on? What are you talking about? What, there's there's sides, there's, there's different views of Scripture, there's different applications of our doctrine, there's all of these things that... And, and then they, they kind of, to some degree, I don't want any part of conflict. I don't want to fight. I don't want to be in a war. I don't, I don't want to have to make a choice. Um, wait, what? The band's breaking up? There's a divorce in my house? What's going on? And, and there are some folks that are really engaged and they've made their decisions. There's other folks that are talking about it and having informational sessions and, and, and some of those are healthy and some of those are unhealthy. Uh, and, and there's conferences that are doing different things with the whole process, not Every conference in the United States is handling it the same um, on a conference level, local church level. Um, and so how do we process moving forward? We find ourselves in the Illinois Great Rivers Conference. We find ourselves fortunate that we ha- that, uh, that there's a table uh, to come to, uh, that there's, uh, there's, a, there's an obedience to the discipline by our bishop. Uh, he has said and is on record, I, I'm a man of, I think, at least two books, if not three, the, the Bible, the discipline, and the hymnal, <laughs> or the book of worship, something to that effect, where he is trying to uh, do his um, vowed best uh, to be the bishop that he was elected to be and, and, uh, and seek the Lord and follow uh, the legislative process in front of him as uh, part of that branch. Yeah, it's not helped. Uh, but there's just, there's so much tension. It, yeah, it's not helped that it, it feels like a lot of congregations are, uh, have been kept from the, the deep places of drama, you know, over this. But it's also hit the headlines of newspapers and, um, you know, television broadcasts in ways that uh, you know, must be bizarre to stumble upon if you're just the average United Methodist layperson. But since 2016, um, the things of the United Methodist Church has split or is splitting or is doing these things. And yeah. Um, oh, yeah. so they get glimpses of it, right, in the local news um, where we are, where Gabe and I serve, we're on the border with Illinois and Iowa. And um, our local church had not had much conversation. And then last fall, it was um, front page news on the Quad City Times uh, that several United Methodist churches in Iowa were splitting away from uh, Methodism. And so then they come saying, what's this about? And, you know, don't have a background 
to the things that we've all sort of had our hand in. So it's led to a lot of confusion, I think, in the local church, um, mashed up with denial a little bit. Like Gabe said, you don't want your family to have the fight. Um, and um, and sometimes avoidance, you know, of uh, the issue before us. And, and all of these things, like the launch of the GMC, the cancellation of General Conference, um, the elimination of the protocol, has forced some churches to have conversations um, to inform their folks. Um, In part, (laughs) uh, and I think we mentioned this in the last show, uh, in part because if you're a United Methodist that knows something about our our structure, it it typically, leaving the United Methodist Church before all of this mess was not something people considered often, A, because the intensity of the situations weren't enough to talk about it, but B, because of the trust clause. Um, a lot of people just didn't imagine that they could not be United Methodist because the building and the property belongs to the United Methodist Church. And churches invest so much in their property uh, and it's home to them that I, a lot of folks just never considered, right, that that it's possible. So maybe that leads us to paragraph 2553 about uh, the way forward, but the confusion on the local church level is legit, you know? Yeah, and some of that confusion is from it comes from good motives i mean where where churches haven't talked about it i mean mm-hmm. i um i i saw it for a long time as shielding my my congregation yes. from the drama that was that was happening Th- that's no longer an option uh, like until there was something to right. talk yeah. about um, that that's no longer an option because all of their friends uh in other united methodist churches are are disaffiliating and we we have to have this um this conversation, um, and at the end, end of the day, I mean, and we, I think we said this in the last episode. This, this is not a salvation issue for me. No, uh, I, 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 I happen to be more orthodox in my my position, um, but it's not a salvation issue. Uh, so I would rather talk about salvation issues. Let's talk about how to how to make disciples of Jesus for the transformation of the world, um, and then let's all submit every part of who we are, including our sexuality, to the lordship of Jesus. Um, so it's it's not a primary issue for me, but it's become the primary issue because the United Methodist Church is. Um, falling apart in that regard. Well, so. and and as I hope we've outlined uh, in these last couple of episodes, now this is a about a whole lot more than just sexuality. Yes, yes. This yeah. is this is a lo- about deeper doctrinal differences that are over a century standing, um, along with just covenantal structural issues within our denomination. How how those kind of things have played out that have led us to this place. Yeah. Like, um, why, why have a system if you can't enforce it? Exactly. I mean, back you to, know, so judicial council says one thing, the college of bishops says another, you know, and then the loss of that shared language. So in that most right. recent round of bishop elections, I talked about uh, Bishop Bridgeforth, um, a gay man being elected, but a bishop in our jurisdiction uh, was elected and assigned in our jurisdiction who is on record saying it is not important that we agree who Jesus is. Yeah. That yeah. that's a salvation issue for me. We yeah. we have to agree on who Jesus is. Yeah. Um, yes. To be Christ followers together. Um, and they you know they're trying to say that that was taken out of context. Well, I've looked at the full context of it, and 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 that is 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 terribly sad and problematic. Um, 
to me that, that that was said. So yeah, I think because this, and maybe it might not be important to you guys. I think it's important to me because things can be taken out of context, and people only listen sometimes to to sort of uh, half of things that we can just reiterate again. Um, you know that this is not about the welcome of all people uh, into the life of the church. Right, that this sort of conservative, um, progressive battle that's happening is not about whether your gay friends and family can come to church and worship with you. Um, they are welcome into worship. They received into the the body of Christ. Right. They can uh, receive communion, participate in the ministries, um, and so it is not about that. It's also not about the gift of salvation in Jesus Christ. Um, and again, not a salvation issue. And and some people do try to paint it that way um, because again, any restriction for someone who is progressive uh, is an act of justice. Then, so the restriction around covenant of marriage and and um, ordination. Um, and I don't know that it came up in the in the last episode, but when we say restriction around ordination, we mean that someone can be openly gay uh, and ordained, but have to commit to celibacy. Um, and so there are avenues into ordination. Uh, we have just landed in the partial inclusion territory, right? We're not fully inclusive and we're not fully restrictive as United Methodists. But uh, so I, I want to cover all of that so, <laughs> so that people know where our hearts are about serving people and loving people and offering people Jesus. That's that's for all people. But as we've named, there is a tension around um, uh, what how some how a group of people see um, the covenant of um, marriage and sexuality, and then there's an integrity issue right, about honoring that according to how they interpret Scripture. And then there's an integrity and covenant issue for a group of people who interpret that differently. And how can you run after the same mission and have the same goals when we have these, um, you know, the theological divide ahead of us? Right. So, it is about this larger theological divide, as we've said. The reason sexuality is kind of the presenting issue on this, it, right now, a lot of it is because of the disaffiliation paragraph. So, you've heard us uh, mention paragraph 2553. Uh, this was a paragraph that was added to the Book of Discipline uh, at the special session of General Conference when the traditional plan passed. It was intended to be a quote-unquote exit ramp for progressive-leaning congregations who... Um, could not uh, abide by the, the the traditional plan that was passed. Uh, in the wake of that, it has become an exit ramp for uh, mostly for conservative congregations. There have been a few uh, progressive congregations who, has, who have also used it. And paragraph 2553 uh, essentially gives a trust clause holiday um, that a, a church can um, can discern and vote uh, and and pay money uh, to to their their conference uh it's a formula of uh, of your apportionments unfunded pension liability and in in our conference um which is one of the smoother um processes out there there's a 10 percent assessment on top of that for all of the legal fees um so every church is is looking at several options right now the first option is do nothing because you see that what is coming is what you want um you know, and this the 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 continuing expression of the United Methodist Church is is what you hope it will be. Uh, second option is there are churches that are waiting and seeing. Um, our 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 bishop has has asked um, churches to wait until general conference does something, and to, uh, it's not based on hypotheticals. Um, 
you know, so wait and see what general conference does and, and then have a conversation. Uh, third option that has kind of two nuances to it is to use paragraph 2553 to disaffiliate. Uh, you can disaffiliate from the United Methodist church in order to join a, a new denomination, such as the global Methodist church, or some have joined the free Methodist church. There are other options that are emerging kind of associations, post-denominational realities. And then there are still, uh, churches, a surprising number of churches to me, uh, that are disaffiliating to independence, uh, that they're just going to be a standalone church. They may affiliate with something down the line, but right now we're going to disaffiliate and focus on being, um, who, who we are. So that's the reality that every church is facing right now. Um, and paragraph 2553 as Adam alluded to, uh, sunsets on December 31st of 2023. So now there's a lot of churches are feeling a a sense of urgency to do something Mm -hmm. because that's going to expire. Um, in, in a, the most charitable reading of, of the general conference, the, the, that paragraph was set to expire when it did because it assumed that general conference would happen in 2020. Obviously, we've been over all of that, why it didn't happen. There are multiple um, bodies, annual conferences, individuals sending legislation to the general conference next year that would extend paragraph 2553 to December 31st of 2026. So it would continue that spirit. Um, Do I think it will pass? I do. Would I be surprised if it doesn't? No, I would not. Um, I'm not going to lay any bets on what the general conference will or will not do. Uh, I've seen the dysfunction that exists there. Yep. Um, you know, so it's a gamble either way. Um, yeah, I think, I think it's probably, probably 50, 50, you know, uh, that that something passes. If I I had to guess, I think, I think the 2553 is in my estimation of people that I've talked to. I think it's, it, it's it's probably up around 80 percent um but i still wouldn't lay any money on it uh, i think it's there's encouraging a, i think there's yeah. a really good chance now if, if, if methodists don't gamble if there are people <laughs> we are united methodists and we've stuck it out this long we have gambled <laughs> um, uh, now people that are waiting for something more charitable than 2553 uh i think they're they're probably less than 50 50 on uh on that i think that's about as good as it's it's going to get um yeah, we're, so, we, we're asking our churches, the ones who are talking about it, to make a decision um, comparing something they know to be certain against a, a possibility. And that is a really hard place to be um, and, and is stirring up a whole other level of grief, right? You're asking churches who have a legacy in their community of, you know, um, because we are bigger than United Methodism, these churches have been in their community a hundred years, right? And you're asking them to make a decision about something that may or may not happen in a handful of years, and that's deeply painful. And you have you have a lot of churches too that just don't want to rock the boat. Yeah, uh, right. You know. right. The the why isn't big enough for right. them. You know what's what's the why? Why why make a decision? Why why just not not talk about it? Let's just see what happens. I don't. It doesn't affect me. Nothing changes here. What's the why? Why are why is everyone talking about it all upset? Uh, and I think sometimes um, it's helpful to remember that sometimes uh, the why is this is hindering our mission. This is hindering the process. We can't, if we don't understand or agree on what we believe in and how we practice what we believe in, it's really hard to move forward. It's hard to be associated with people that are uh 
doing things that we don't agree with in our tenets, in our theolo- in our in our uh, interpretation of Scripture, in our practice, an application of loving the world around us, in our calling toward holiness, social and personal. If we don't understand the why behind some of this, and that it's somehow affecting our ability to make disciples, to be disciples, and to be in covenant with one another, then I can understand why people would want to just not talk about it but the, the more i think about a measure of the why it becomes it becomes something we have to at least discuss and consider and weigh uh, on that scale uh, you know obviously the the best uh, argument for staying is that uh, you know it's in waiting and seeing is that nothing has changed on paper in coming up on 8 years right uh, our book of discipline has been the same since 2016 that is the most current copy of the Book of Discipline we have because General Conference hasn't met officially, except for that special session in 2019. They haven't met. Um, and so nothing has changed on paper. So what we've been describing is how everything has changed in practice yeah, and how now the, the weight of that Book of Discipline that it carries is different because of what has Absolutely. happened. And, and the it, way I've described it is the Book of Discipline has essentially become more or less a paperweight that we pick up and lob at one another when it serves our purposes. <laughs> yeah, and so I think to, to quote Bishop Beard again, nothing changed, but everything shifted. Yeah. You know, and so, um, so those, are, those are the kind of options that are before churches, and it's a, uh, it's a deeply... Um, contextual reality for for every church, um, and I I am so disheartened by the vitriol that is uh, being thrown around at people who have chosen to stay or people who have chosen to leave. Um, when every pastor and every local church has to make a very contextual decision um, for their family um, and 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 their understanding uh, of of their call to ministry as pastors and for their practice of ministry and the well-being of their church family as local churches uh, and even us on this podcast are are not monolithic in our um our approach to this uh, we're all more or less in the same position regarding human sexuality we're all more or less in the same position uh when it comes to our overarching meta narrative of uh of theology but all of us have found our found ourselves in our own discernment process as individual uh ordained elders um and in the way we've approached this um with our uh local churches uh so uh we just want to run through that really quickly just to show that it, this is a this is a very personal and contextual thing. So, Adam, why don't you tell us a little bit about what's been going on in your world with this? Yeah, so our folks at Morton United Methodist Church obviously have just been paying attention. Um, as you said, Larry, uh, some of their friends and family who attend other United Methodist churches have been going through these discernment processes uh, towards disaffiliation. So they just want answers. They just want to know what's going on. Uh, and so uh, the Ad Council, our, our leadership at, at Morton United Methodist Church, unanimously requested uh, that be, we begin holding informational sessions um, just to kind of go through exactly what we've been going through these last couple of episodes. And uh, so that's exactly what we've been doing um, is just kind of letting folks know what's going on, how we got here, and uh, what our options are moving forward so that they can at least have that information in front of them. Uh, which I think, you know, at this point, at minimum, uh, folks deserve to know uh, what, their, what their options are and, and what our Book of Discipline says 
Um, you know, I, they're they're in some circles uh, even mentioning the word disaffiliation is uh, a taboo. Uh, where you know this this really is about just knowing what our book of discipline says um, and has said since since 2019. Um, so that's that's exactly kind of what we've been discussing um, in conjunction with uh, pastoral leadership and and uh, lay leadership um, at uh, at Morton. Cool. What about uh, Christchurch up in Quad Cities? Um, you know, Gabe and I are are were in a different situation. Um, you know, we've been here about a year and a half, going on two years, and the first year of our appointment here was um, just turned upside down with our uh, personal loss and um, and what we were able to give to ministry was uh, survival uh, mode, uh, which meant you know, we're brand new in a community and we're still learning the church uh, in a lot of ways. Um, and so we've maybe had to, to um, step more lightly than some other churches uh, in order to to take the temperature of this church to say, do they want to talk about it? And um, and who are they? And what do they uh, represent? And uh, we're in a an area where we're probably um, a little more diverse in our congregational makeup, and how do we consider um, walking through this with a body who has more than one opinion on the matter? And um, so right before Christmas and into the new year, um, we held some congregational informational sessions. They had not talked about it since uh, before 2016 and kind of took the approach that many of us did to say, we'll talk about it when there's something to talk about. Um, and so it felt like we needed to get them up to speed, just like we've done in these episodes to say these are the things that have changed um, since 2016. Yeah, no, there was just one meeting I think Christchurch had uh, just following the special call General mm -hmm. Conference 2019, but it was just that one time um, to just give an update uh, so, primarily. So we've um, been in conversation with our uh, leadership, updating them and asking um, you know, for our discernment together about what the congregation um, might want to talk about or not talk about. We then had those congregational informational sessions, and now we're um, and they were they were very basic, introducing them to the changes <clears throat> since 2016 and what paragraph 2553 is. Um, our our job at the moment is to begin taking the temperature of people's responses to that. What questions do they have? Do they want to talk more about it? Do they not want to talk more about it? So we're sort of in reading the temperature mode, uh, but we'll be. Um, will move forward at at the rate in which they want to move forward uh, because there there is this reality there are churches that that don't want to talk about it um, because they don't want to upset their um, wonderful church environment there are pastors who don't want to talk about it because um, they don't want to upset the system either um, I personally felt that it would be malpractice to not inform them of mm -hmm. um, the potential options before them. But then it is our responsibility to shepherd them through in a way that says, you know who you are, Christchurch. You, you've been operating this way for decades uh, as a family of people with differing opinions, uh, reaching the community. Uh, where do you fit in the next chapter? And, um, and if they were to say, we're happy to sort of keep our heads down and, and um, move forward with Methodism, it's our job to help usher them in that direction. And if they were to say, uh, we don't know how to live in covenant 
you know, with this level of disagreement, we need to go another way. It's our job to shepherd them that way. So, uh, so we're in temperature taking mode, and um, we'll try to listen with them for where God has Christchurch. Yeah, that's really a healthy way to engage it and to remember that it is our job as pastors to essentially try to get ourselves out of the way of this congregation's discernment, really putting ourselves more in a support role since our membership resides with the annual conference. We don't have a vote in this process. And any congregation who makes these kinds of decisions is going to have to deal with them for far longer than we're ever around, no matter how long we are around. Um, And so, you know, really, truly finding ways to allow this to be the local church's decision um, and and simply coming alongside them in that. I think that's a really healthy thing. Thank you. Thank you. And and we will try to check ourselves every day to make sure it's about them and not us because they know pastors pastors come and go in the Methodist Mm -hmm. church, right? Like... uh, Gabe and I have only known living in parsonages and being itinerant. Uh, we know we could be here a long time, and we may not be here a long time. And so it becomes our responsibility to lead them. I will say this. Our congregation has diverse representation. All of them who have heard are insanely frustrated and heartbroken um, that we're not living under the agreement of our covenant and that that has put them in the position of having to make these decisions. And they're they're a bit angry about how come we've allowed um, disobedience to happen in such a way that's making the local church have to decide when we have been living in covenant. And um, and I understand their frustration around that. So that's part of the grief they're moving through. Yeah. yeah, I think that's really important what you guys have just been saying about separating out the discernment of the pastoral leadership from the discernment of of the church. Um, so at, at Tremont, um, we have, um, not engaged the whole congregation yet. Um, we've, we've let our, our elected leaders, um, work and prepare a recommendation. Um, like I said, it's deeply contextual. So that's, mm-hmm. that's what works best for, um, for us. By the time this episode airs, uh, it'll be public that our administrative council has voted, uh, unanimously to recommend that the church wait um, to make any decisions until after general conference. And as we were having these conversations, um, as I was sharing information and uh, I kept emphasizing your discernment has to be separate from, from mine and pastor Jackie's, um, discernment, uh, that has become true in, in a new way. Uh, we were leaning towards recommending that anyway. Now that's even, uh, a stronger recommendation uh, because I am withdrawing from the United Methodist Church. Um, and July 1, I'll become one of the pastors at Grace Church um, in Cape Coral, Florida. We've had George on the, the show a couple of times. Uh, and the reality of that is Grace Church is a church that has disaffiliated uh, from the United Methodist Church. Now, I keep emphasizing that that was not um, a primary thing in in my decision making process um, in doing that, I think if Grace was still a United Methodist Church at this point, I'd be asking for a transfer. Uh, and if they were gone Global Methodist, I'd be transferring to the GMC. Uh, it, it, it's about a sense of call and uh, alignment with the team at Grace Church, but it is part of the reality that we're all facing. That um, uh, as, as of July first, I will no longer be a United Methodist elder. I'll be. Uh, I'll be an ordained elder in Christ's holy church. Uh, and Grace is one of those churches that um, has disaffiliated, and they're charting their own way. 
um, they're they're forming a new uh, group called the Sanctification Project, and it's uh, very embryonic right now, but it will be a voluntary association of like-minded churches banding together for accountability to doctrine uh, and accountability to effectiveness. Um, and it's, it's a really small group right now, but there are churches all over the country who have uh, caught wind of what's happening with the Sanctification Project and want in uh, on it. And uh, I'm really excited for that to be my new tribe. Um, uh, in that, and and being part, still being a part of the Methodist movement, even though I won't be United Methodist. So I think uh, for Tremont, that's even more important now um, to 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 wait and see what's going to happen with General Conference. Because if they were to push the button on disaffiliation right now, they would be um, coming up with the, having a painful congregational vote first off, because uh, that's a reality for everybody, then if that passed, they'd be coming up with the money to uh, to get out of the trust clause. And, oh, by the way, you'd be searching for your own pastor. Mm-hmm. Um, so they've been uh, uh, honest and open with uh, their district superintendent about what they hope for in their next leader of somebody that will do as I've done, at least let them have the conversation. Um, cause there are places where pastors on both sides, conservative or progressive are just not allowing their churches to have open conversations, um, about this. So, um, thanks for sharing all of that. Oh, yeah, so, go ahead. No, I, well, I didn't, there are some conferences that have shut down all conversations. Sure. Yeah. So right. yeah, in Illinois, great rivers, we've got, I mean, there's, uh, there's certainly lots of disagreement around disaffiliation. Um, and, um, I guess an ignorance about what we've just said, that it's really a deeply contextual and personal thing for every pastor and church. And there's not a monolithic answer um, uh, to this, but we still have one of the, one of the best processes um, and, and, and a bishop who's held integrity um, uh, through this, through this process. And in some conferences um, it's not happening. Um, and that's, uh, that's 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 sad as well that there is a provision in the discipline that's not being allowed. Um, but also, it's deeply contextual in those conferences. Mm-hmm. There there are things that we know not of that could potentially be happening there. So all that to say, dear listeners, um, it's a bit of a mess right now. And, a bit, uh, <laughs> yeah. And, and I and yeah, I, you just dropped a bomb right in the middle of that. I was going to say you dropped a, a real big bomb. Let's let's take a pause, please, and go ahead. It's Sarah. fair to say we should we should recognize that this mess is affecting everybody at every level. Um, mm-hmm. You know the the congregation members saying, "Why are we having to have this discussion?" Because the mess is happening in in ineffectiveness or misapplication at other levels. Um, you know, churches are having to decide what their legacy looks like when they their parents and grandparents could have never fathomed the church being anything but United Methodist. Even the ones who sort of put their head down and wait um, and go in the direction of Methodism without the conversation will experience the effects of loss of clergy that they've known and systems they've known and and members that they've known uh, will be gone, right, um, from them. And I And it's worth saying, Larry, that, you know, it affects pastors deeply on um, a personal level. You know, you withdrawing your membership to go in the direction that God has called you, it, it happens to coincide with disaffiliation, but it's about the call. But, I mean, it's not like you are ever in the position to imagine not being a United Methodist pastor. It is your 
your blood, your heart, your life, and and um, it brings grief on a personal level to pastors as they have to make these decisions too about uh, about their convictions and in, in the mission and how they move forward. So there is nobody who will be unscathed by this. And in fact, we just all got back from uh, two days with our clergy brothers and sisters at a like required retreat by the bishop, and it was wonderful to be together because we hadn't been since COVID um, and being in the same room and singing hymns and uh, and talking about mission and hope felt so normal. And yet, I, I don't know that there wasn't a person in the room who, who wasn't deeply sad because you looked around the room and you went, this is a different group of people than it was uh, just a handful of years ago. And you miss them and you miss who we used to be. And um, I'm grieving that, right? Missing mm-hmm. who we used to be. Uh, yeah, at, at, at walking into that room as, as someone who realized that that was my last time yeah. in, that, in that particular room, uh, I looked around and felt like I was losing my family. Yeah. Like the, the dysfunction and all. I mean, there are people in that room that I deeply disagree with about, about theology and practice of ministry. Um, but we're a dysfunctional family together. And I struggled. Um, yeah through that, knowing that, um, you know, the three of us are always at a table together and I'll be, or the four of us, I'll be the, the chair that's not there, uh, in the future. And that, that was an unbearable thought. And, you know, even, you know, I had a wonderful moment with our Bishop that I will keep, uh, the contents of as a, as a treasured memory, but, but as he, um, acknowledged that, um, this is different. I'm not, uh, walking away for those reasons. And he blessed me into a new season of ministry and, um, gave me a sense of release from the loyalty that I've had to the United Methodist Church. Um, and I, I'm not going to toss anybody under the bus. Um, mm. So, uh, and we've said on Midnight Theology from the beginning that we talk all things in the Wesleyan Methodist movement. So I, I'm not I'm not quitting the podcast. I'm not getting kicked out of here. I am just as Methodist and Wesleyan as I have ever been uh, before. Yeah, we the, are go not, into all the world, yeah. Larry. Go into all just, the world. I'll just being a different different expression of that, and we may all find ourselves in different expressions uh, as, as time because goes on. Because we are just... not a United Methodist podcast, right? We are a Wesleyan Methodist podcast. We just happen to all oh. be United Methodist right now. Yeah. Speaking about going into all the world. Yeah. Is there something you want to tell us, Larry? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> hey. Uh, How's that for a transition? Uh, yeah, wow. that was that was almost like it was planned. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Yeah, so uh, as we kind of transition out of that conversation and um, uh, just thank you for listening and bearing with us on that, uh, we want to make a shameless plug uh, today. You've heard us talk about it before. Uh, we even did a an episode live from Jerusalem. Uh, the Midnight Theology crew will be uh, leading together a Holy Land pilgrimage, uh, and we are so, so excited uh, to do this uh, together. Um, we've, we've all been uh, before, and it'll be my, my fifth time uh, leading, uh, leading a trip uh, to the Holy Land, uh, and uh, the details will be with the, with the show notes. It's March 3rd through 12th of 2024. Uh, it's just over $4,000 um, uh, to go, and that includes your uh, all of your airfare, um, uh, group visa, travel within the country, breakfast and dinner daily at the hotel, 
pretty nice hotel accommodations, uh, a professional tour guide and driver who will do things that you can, you have never seen a NASCAR <laughs> driver do uh, in, in those uh, those incredible huge buses. Uh, and to, but at a much slower yes, pace. Uh, but And to have the opportunity to, to pray and walk and study together uh, in – uh, in the land of, of the Bible. Um, for those who have traveled with us in the past, it's going to look a little different. We're still going to hit uh, a lot of the uh, the main highlights uh, in the Galilee and in Jerusalem, but we're also going to go to some new sites. Uh, we're going to go to Tel Dan this year. Oh, that's and, a good one. Uh, we're going to do Hezekiah's tunnel and uh, we're going to do Mount Carmel where my favorite old Testament story uh, happened with Elijah confronting the prophets of Baal. Um, uh, so it, it's going to be an incredible trip. Uh, it takes about a year to plan everything out. Uh, so that's why we're plugging it out and uh, we're traveling with educational opportunities EO uh, and they provide some small discounts for the early registrations. So if you register by April the 3rd, you get a $150 discount. Uh, and by May the 3rd, $125 discount. I imagine that we'll have an informational meeting uh, at some point. We'll have them in our various um, uh, contexts. So uh, be on the uh, lookout for that. And we would love to have you uh, travel with us uh, to the Holy Land uh, next year. Uh, Inshallah, if God wills, uh, we'll, we'll all be uh, together. So that's uh, all the time that we have for today. Next month, we're going to tackle uh, something really incredible, but not nearly as difficult of a conversation Thank goodness. Uh, as, as we've been having. Ha- having. Uh, Sarah has recently returned from a trip to Cuba with World Methodist Evangelism uh, and seen the incredible things that God is uh, doing there. Uh, and we're also going to talk a little bit about what... Uh, We've all kind of observed on that unfolded at Asbury University and what's being called the Asbury outpouring. And we're just going to, instead of talking about this stuff, uh, we're going to talk about what God is up to and what we see God doing uh, in in the future of of the Methodist movement and 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 how that's kind of uh, playing out in Cuba and what began at Asbury. So until then, thanks for joining us on Midnight Theology. Uh, and remember, we know that all of this is difficult and and heartbreaking. Uh, for the people called Methodist. Um, but the churches of God and the Methodist movement is bigger than the United Methodist Church. The gates of hell will not prevail against the church. And we will keep having these conversations. And we will keep um, being together through all of this because the dead of midnight is the noon of thought. Thanks for joining us on Midnight Theology. See you soon. Mm-hmm.